Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 3 in the message version. King Nebuchadnezzar built a golden statue 90 feet high and 9 feet thick on the Dura Plain in Babylon. He ordered all the important leaders, everybody who was anybody, to the dedication ceremony of the statue. A herald then proclaimed in a loud voice, Attention everyone, every race, colour and creed, listen. When you hear the band strike up, all the trumpets and trombones, the tubers and the drums and the cymbals, fall to your knees and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Anyone who does not kneel and worship shall be thrown immediately into a roaring furnace. The band started to play and everyone fell to their knees and worshipped the gold statue. Then some Babylonian fortune tellers stepped up and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, you gave strict orders, O king, that when the big band started playing, everyone had to fall to their knees and worship the gold statue, and whoever did not go to their knees and worship had to be pitched into a roaring furnace. Well, there are some Jews here, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, whom you have placed in high positions in the province of Babylon. These men are ignoring you, O king. They don't respect your gods and they won't worship the gold statue you set up. Furious, King Nebuchadnezzar ordered Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to be brought in. When the men were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar asked, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you don't respect my gods and refuse to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I'm giving you a second chance. From now on, when the band strikes up, you must go to your knees and worship the statue I have made. If you don't worship it, you'll be pitched into a roaring furnace. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered King Nebuchadnezzar, Your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace, O king. But even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar, his face purple with anger, ordered the furnace to be fired up seven times hotter than usual. He ordered some strong men from the army to tie them up, hands and feet, and throw them into the roaring furnace. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, bound hand and foot, fully dressed from head to toe, were pitched into the roaring fire. Because the king was in such a hurry and the furnace was so hot, flames from the furnace killed the men who carried Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to it, while a fire raged around Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Suddenly, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm and said, Didn't we throw three men into the fire? That's right, O king, they said. But look, he said, I see four men walking around freely in the fire, completely unharmed and the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar went to the door of the roaring furnace and called in Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego walked out of the fire. The fire hadn't so much as touched the three men, not a hair singed, not a scorch mark on their clothes, not even the smell of fire on them. 
Did you ever see the amazing, now famous photograph from 1936 of a huge crowd of people all saluting Hitler? But one man stands out because he keeps his arms crossed and doesn't join in. He was identified as August Landmesser, a German shipyard worker who wanted to be a loyal citizen but fell in love with a Jewish lady. The government just passed a law forbidding intermarriage. A few years later, she was killed in Ravensbrück concentration camp, whereas he was pressed into military service, sent to the front line and died. There's a phrase that says, you've got to go along to get along, but he wouldn't. He couldn't go along with what everybody else was doing. Now, I like to think I'd be like him because the Bible says, do not follow the crowd in wrongdoing. But really, I'm not sure at all. When the trumpets, tubers and trombones play and it's trouble if you don't join in, I'm like you, we like to fit in. When everyone's singing the same song and saying the same thing, the popular thing, what seems to be the right thing as far as everybody else is concerned, when it's bow down or die, what do we do? Stanley Milgram was a psychologist who examined the justifications given after the war at the Nuremberg trials for those who'd committed the atrocities and genocides. And he saw how often they said, we, we're not bad people, we're just ordinary people. We were just being obedient to the higher authorities. So in the 60s at Yale, he said, set up what's now become a very famous experiment to test how far people would go in obeying an, inst an instruction if it involved hurting other people. You can check the details out for yourself, but basically 40 people were made to believe by a man in a white coat, an authority figure, carrying a clipboard, that on the other side of this screen was a man, really an actor they'd already met in the waiting room, who they saw being strapped into a testing chair with some wires placed upon him. Then they went next door and they couldn't see him, but they had a button and they were to ask questions. And if the guy, who now they couldn't see, got an answer wrong, they were to press the button. They were told the person would be receiving an electric shock, starting out very mild, but it would go up to 450 volts, which was very severe. They had this fake box in front of them, showing the needle going up when they pressed it. And of course, the actor starts giving wrong answers. Just about everybody went along and gave the first couple of light shocks without really saying any, any prompting. But if they refused, the authority figure would say something like, the experiment requires that you continue. And mostly they did. Even if they could hear the other person screaming on the other side of the screen. Many of them actually didn't even seem reluctant at all. In fact, he said they showed extreme willingness, with 65% of them going right up to the highest shock they could give. All of them went to 300 volts. He went on to do 18 variations of the same experiment, always got similar results. You see, that wasn't even about peer pressure and the crowd, just the power of an authority figure. But he showed how much people are willing to take orders if they believe that they're morally or legally correct and how they'll mistreat others quite easily to do so. Now, the authority figure in the story we've been looking at from Daniel was the most powerful human in the world at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar. Full of pride, he created a 90-foot-high god. And many scholars think it's a statue of himself. He wanted everybody else to bow down to him. Not just some, not just anybody who wanted to. Everybody had to do it. No choice. You see, when power becomes tyranny, it's never satisfied till every single person bows down. And it must have been a magnificent spectacle, gleaming and golden in the sun on this immense plain in the heat of the Mesopotamian sun. 
Everyone was told, step up, come out, bow down, or else. Anyone who refuses, anyone who does not fall in line, who does not obey the orders, forfeits the right to life. It's bow or burn. Your only choice really is smoking on smoking. Verse 7 says, everybody was going along with it. All the Babylonians, people from all the nations and languages, because after all, they were very tolerant people. Babylon was a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious place now. A huge mixed crowd who all worshipped lots of gods anyway, and they agreed this was the good thing to do. They heard the order from the king. They saw what everybody else was doing, so they came out and stepped up, sang along, bowed down, and worshipped the image the, the man-made object of worship because of course this does have regard uh, issues with regard to freedom and personal liberty but that really wasn't so much what bothered Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego because they realised that this wasn't about their freedom it was actually about worship everybody bows down to someone or something everybody worships sociologically anthropologically there's never been a people group or a place or a time in history that has not had some element of religion even atheists make a god of their own intellect by declaring they know for sure no god exists. The question is never whether we will worship, the question is what. We may not bow down to little statues or big ones or, 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 or images of powerful people, but what will we devote our attention, our focus and give our allegiance towards and our love towards? What do we spend our lives pursuing? What or whom is number one? Because People worship what matters most to them. You may be in church today singing or joining us online and singing along, and, oh, I love you, Lord, but show me your calendar and your bank statements and we'll see what matters most to you. That's what you really worship. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he describes a, a downward spiral of sin and corruption, how it spoils the whole world, but it has its origin in worship, in the choice that humanity makes to look at the world God made and rather than worship him, the creator, to worship the creation. Just like Adam and Eve in the beginning, ever since, because he says they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Something happened. They, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idols, things, stuff. It could be gold or made of it. It could look like other humans or it could be other people or, 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 or animals or pretty much anything. It's, it's the corruption of true worship of the true God, the one we were made and meant to enjoy worshipping forever. As G.K. Chesterton is quoted as saying, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing but worships everything. Anything we decide or invent can become our idol. But it's really important we choose correctly what we worship because of what always happens next. People become like what they worship. Psalm 115 declares, Our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him, but their gods are silver and gold, made by human hands. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Are we trusting silver and gold? What images are we doing? We, we become reflections of what we focus and worship what what's the great news actually about that is if we really worship Jesus Christ we become more like him but have you have you heard the myth of Narcissus who fell in love with his own reflection could it be with the most narcissistic generation in history Romans said 
when we, when, when they, when people exchange God's glory for images, we're actually rejecting the real God. You can't have both. Jesus said, nobody can serve two masters. The real God is holy, holy, holy. Like the, Isaiah the prophet saw and heard the angels declare. You see, it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar in his pride. People make gods in their own image all the time, but the real God is not like us. We're sinful. Sinful people make false gods like themselves and reject the real God for a little version they feel in control of. They hope we'll do whatever we want to keep us safe and well and out of trouble, keep us happy, popular, successful. If we, if we rub his little belly, a little G-God, who will agree to what we think or say, he should do and never hold us to account or judge us. But you know what the real problem with that is? Here's the, here's the problem with that. God. God really has a problem with that. The true God has a big problem with all the little gods we worship. That's why he put making him number one with no rivals or substitutes, the first and the second of the Ten Commandments. We read in Exodus chapter 20, he says, you shall have no other gods before me, there's number one, and you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So that's why Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego knew in one sense that they had a big problem. Not just, because, not just because the golden statue was nearly 10 stories high, even though they saw everybody else around them bowing down and having no problem with bowing down, they knew what God had told them. They knew God's commands. He said, you must not bow down to an idol. You must not sacrifice, swear by, serve or worship any other gods. So the king says, have you seen the golden statue I have made? Yes, your majesty. Have you heard the music? Have you read the law? You know, have you seen what everybody else is doing? Yes, your majesty. Do you know that everybody, everybody, including you, has to bow down? No, your majesty. We can't, we can't do that. We can't go along with that. We can't obey that law. We won't bow down to it because of what the true God said. And because also, you know what? It's just a statue. When the threats came, the chance to change their minds and do the right thing now, keep your position, stay safe by just going along and doing what everybody else was saying. At this crisis moment, they took a stand. They did not bow down. The choice they were presented with was very stark. No room for bargaining, begging, compromising, meeting halfway. It was do or die, bow or burn. And they stepped up closer to the flame. I don't know when, and I don't know whether I'll ever have to make such a stand, but I have to put myself in their shoes and ask, how? How did they refuse and resist in the face, not just of peer pressure, but capital punishment? And the answer seems to be in verses 17 and 18. As the, as the king was bellowing his threats, we see what these three knew about their God. And we can learn so much from this for whatever we have to go through now or may in the future. What they knew in theory was going to be tested in the trial. So let's notice, there are some things we only learn about ourselves when we go through fiery trials. There are only some things we only learn about God when the heat is on. The first thing they knew was that the real God is omnipotent. That's a theological word meaning what they said right here. If we are thrown into the fire, however high you heat it up, the God we serve is able to deliver us. Then you know idol could ever do that. Idols will always let us down. They've got no real power. But number two, they knew the real God is loving. 
So he said, we trust that he will deliver us. He's done it before. All our lives, they're saying he's been faithful. We're going to trust him again. Somehow he's going to do it again. But even if that isn't how it works out, because we can't make the real God do whatever we think is best all the time. We don't know for sure what is best. So instead of that, we're holding on to the truth. Number three, that our God is sovereign. He's large and in charge. He's mightier than any king or earthly ruler, bigger than any statue or statute that you could be forced to bow down to. So even if he doesn't, he says, we will not bow down our king. That's real faith, even if faith is mature faith. I might have God is able faith. I might have God will save us faith. But our brothers and sisters in the suffering church around the world say, even if not, we still have faith. Now, of course, the king's angry than ever because his authority is being challenged. He orders them to be thrown in the oven. Some of his servants go along with it, just doing their duty, good people. But then there was one more thing Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego discovered that day, which may have only been theory until it was tested. But when it happened, even the king saw it and could never be the same afterwards, even though those who threw him in were, were burnt up. He looked and saw another in the fire, walking and talking and meeting with them there. His, his jaw dropped when they came out unharmed. And as you read on, you see, he turned away from his idols and now he worshipped their God and commanded everybody else to do the same. Some things, some things about God you may only know, and you'll never really know until you go through the fire. See, we ask, why God? Why did you let this happen to us? I love you. Why did I have to go through that? But then you find, you meet him in the fire. Some of you know this already. He may not have saved you from it, but he's saving you in it. In one of the most precious promises of the Bible, God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2. But we'll never prove that scripture. It, it's just theory until it's tested, until we're tested. When the heat is on, we find out for real that the real God is able and the real God is loving and the real God is sovereign. But we also find, whether we see it at the time or find out later, number four, no matter what, where, when we have to go through it, our God is with us. He's with us. There's another in the fire. One like a son of man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we can see him unless there's smoke in our eyes. Maybe the fire for you will be an illness, a bereavement. Maybe the threat won't be the loss of our lives. It could be loss of a job or popularity. But the Lord is with us in the fire. He's there. He meets us. He's right where you are when the heat is on. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org/media.